Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 3 through 5 together this morning. Peter is writing uh, his letter, as you remember, to uh, various churches that are scattered throughout modern day Turkey. One of his primary reasons for writing this letter is to encourage the believers to persevere in faith during times of suffering. So for example, in verse 6, he speaks of being distressed by various trials. All kinds of trials. Chapter 2, he'll speak of them being slandered as evildoers and suffering for doing what is right. Chapter 3, he'll say that they suffer for the sake of righteousness. They're slandered for their good behavior and and they're reviled for their good behavior. In chapter 4, they are maligned for not running with unbelievers to the same degree of excess in their sins. That they're engaging, they're suffering a fiery ordeal, which is for their testing. And in chapter 5, they're being attacked by the devil who like a roaring lion is seeking someone to devour. Now this really kind of describes life even today. Uh, Many of us have our various trials. Some is through persecution because of our faith. Some is just because we live in a sin-cursed and fallen world. And things happen. And trials come. And we need to know the truth of the Word of God, to build our faith so that we can be like the burning bush in the Old Testament, that though it was on fire, it was not consumed. And we can be like a cactus, using a different metaphor, that can thrive in arid, dry, scorching heat of the desert by retaining water in its thick leaves. So that in its season, it can produce those beautiful blossoms for the glory of God. So Peter is basically in this letter writing of various precious truths that they can store them up in their hearts, which will be like water for their souls in times of drought, times of spiritual scorching heat. And one of the greatest truths that he's going to emphasize in chapter 1 is get your mind off of your troubles and your trials and put them on your inheritance in heaven. And that this is a great source of encouragement and strength and consolation for them. So with that in mind, let's begin reading in verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Reading the inspired Word of God. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the first thing he he writes to these suffering believers is of their inheritance, which is kept for them in heaven. Notice how he starts out in verse 3. Peter says, 
God is blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is is the fountain of every blessing that we receive because in and of Himself, He is an infinite and eternal reservoir of blessedness. God is blessed. He is full and overflowing with goodness and mercy and grace to us because He's the never-ending fountain of those blessings. He possesses that within Himself infinitely, eternally. He is the source of all blessings. And we praise God when we recount how blessed, how great, how glorious, how good our God is. Now when we do that, we don't add anything to God's blessedness. When God blesses us, He adds a lot to us. He adds a lot of good things to us. But when we bless God, when we praise God, when we pronounce Him as being blessed, we don't actually add anything to God. You can't add something to someone who who already possesses an infinite amount of it. So even though God blesses good things to us to increase our blessedness, when we bless God, as Peter does here in verse 3, we don't add anything to Him. We merely put His... His blessedness on display when we praise Him publicly. So that other people can hear how great and glorious and good our God is. But we don't actually add anything to Him like He adds to us. It'd be like touring an art museum of priceless masterpieces. Every room full of them. And you walk into one particular room and the lights are off. And you don't see anything. You don't see the masterpieces hanging on the wall. You don't see the sculpture. You don't see anything. But then you turn on the light. And suddenly, you see the the genius and the skill and just the incredible imagination and, and beauty of what these people have done. Now I ask you, was all of that masterpiece, all that artwork, was it any less valuable in the dark than it was in the light? It was, it was equally valuable. But when you turn on the light, all you do is you put it on display. But even in the dark, it's still valuable. So all we do when we bless God is we just turn on the lights. We just publicly acknowledge that God is blessed. We don't actually add any value to Him. He is infinitely worthy of praise and adoration. But we just flip on the lights. We just make it more public so others can hear and enter into the worship of God. That's what Peter is doing. He says that God is blessed. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So He is blessing God the Father and He is blessing God the Son. And it's good for us to bless God. It's good for us to praise God. Psalm 34 verse 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It is good to to say with your mouth that God is good. It is good to say that God is holy. It is good to say that God is righteous and loving and merciful. It is good to bless God. Because others hear that and they may be drawn to Him. Or they may join their hearts in praising Him. Oh, it is good to bless the Lord at all times. And may His praise continually be in our mouth. Not just in our mind or our heart, but in our mouth to bless the Lord. 
Now, why is Peter blessing the Lord in this passage? Well, we find, in, as we read on in verse 3, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. So the first thing He blesses God for is because God the Father caused us to be born again. Now this particular word that Peter uses only occurs in verse 3 and also in verse 23. And basically it's the idea of new birth. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, that you must be born again. That's the new birth that Peter's talking about here. God has caused us to be born again. To be born again theologically really refers to the idea of God implanting divine spiritual life in the previously dead soul of the sinner. Causes them to be born in newness of life. So that we engage in a spiritual resurrection. That we become a new creature in Christ. And this is the work of the Father. The Father begets children, right? In the physical realm, also in the spiritual realm. God the Father begets children. The children don't cause themselves to be born by themselves. It's a work of of the Father. And of course, a mother. But the God the Father begets children. It's His will. It's His doing. It's totally His work. And you must be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. You can't really believe in God and enter the kingdom of God by faith unless you're born again. And the spiritually dead souls have been come alive. And then now they are able to respond in faith and love to Christ. This new birth brings spiritual life into the grave of our spiritual condition. It brings spiritual light into our darkness so that when we're born again, suddenly we are brought into the condition of life and light. And that's a work of God in changing out the heart. And until God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, then the lights don't come on and the life is not there. It's a stone cold dead heart. It'd be like a a light bulb that's burnt out. The filaments are broken. It, it doesn't work. You turn on the the switch, electrical current goes to the light bulb, but there's no light because it can't pass through because it's broken. The connection is broken. So in the spiritual realm, that's what we're like. We hear the gospel, the electricity of the gospel runs into us, but we're broken on the inside. So there's no light, there's no response. So what God, as our Heavenly Father does, is He comes in, He takes out the old light bulb, and He puts in a new light bulb that works. Flip the switch, electricity comes through it, and suddenly the filament lights up and there's light. There's response. And that's God the Father who has caused us to be born again. And that's what causes the life to come in and the light to come on because He has healed our brokenness on the inside. Later on in verse 23, Peter will emphasize the ministry of the Word of God in that whole process. But right now, he's just blessing God because because if you're alive spiritually, the Father has caused you to be born again. It's His work. So praise God. Praise God and bless God for giving us that new birth, that new life in Christ. 
But the source of that, we are told in verse 3, is the Father's great mercy. It's by His, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Now, God's mercy and God's grace can be distinguished. Some of this, there's overlapping, but grace, which Peter has already prayed for these believers in in, uh, verse 2, has different nuances. But generally, when we think of God's grace, we think of His unmerited and undeserved favor of giving salvation as a gift to those who deserve condemnation. That's His grace. God's unmerited and undeserved favor that He gives as a gift involving salvation to those who deserve condemnation. That's His grace. It's unmerited before the law of God. It's undeserved. We can't do anything to earn it. God's mercy, on the other hand, is God's kindness expressed to someone in need. Someone in need. So it refers more to God's compassion and God's pity for those who are suffering. That's God's mercy. For example, when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, it was the Good Samaritan, not the Levite or the priest, that showed mercy to the man who had been beaten up by robbers on the road. It was the good Samaritan that came to that man who had been stripped, who had been left half dead, beaten up badly by the robbers. And he came and he had mercy. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and paid the innkeeper to take care of him. That's mercy. That's kindness expressed to someone in need. That's God's mercy. Now, God caused us to be born again because of His great mercy. Because when He looked at us, He saw people that were suffering, people that were in need, people that had been mangled and and beaten up by the consequences of our sin. We were wretched and miserable and helpless. So God came in His mercy. He looked upon us in all the corruption of our sin and all the suffering and all the negative effects of our sin. And His heart was poured out in mercy to us. Sin and ruined us. Brought us under God's curse. But as Paul says so, Powerfully in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. You see, great sinners need great mercy. And when God looks upon you and me in our own natural, depraved, and fallen condition, He sees people that need mercy. They are in need. They are suffering. They are afflicted. And they can't heal themselves. So like the good Samaritan that came and brought mercy to the man beaten up, God comes and brings mercy to you and to me 
and causes us to be born again. Well, this new birth that comes out of God's great mercy also gives us a living hope in verse 3. He has caused us by His great mercy to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we're born again to a living hope. It's a living hope because it's in contrast to a dead hope. That's all the world can give you is a dead hope. The world can promise you money and health and fame and glory, but that's a dead hope. I mean, that'll last for a little while, but it is doomed to die. And when you die, you can't take any of that with you. That's why if you ever get buried and you have to buy a suit from the undertaker, so I've been told you buy a jacket if it's a man, and he's got the little flaps on the pockets, but there's no pocket inside there. It's just a flap. That's how they save money on, on selling you a suit. Because the, the idea is, why do you need a pocket? They'll, they'll give you the little flap, but there's no pocket. Because you can't take anything with you, right, anyway. So all the world can offer you is a dead hope. And yet, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And it's a living hope because it's tied to our living Savior. It's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that Christ's resurrection, as we saw last week, is not only the source of our new birth, the new life, the new resurrection life that we have spiritually in Christ, it's also the source of our hope. We have a living hope because we worship a living Savior. Now what is a hope that Peter has in mind? Well, oftentimes when we use a hope, the word hope, uh, we talk about things that we're not sure is going to happen in the future. You know, we may say, well, I hope it rains or I hope the sun stays out. I hope this. I'm not really, I don't know for sure, but I hope it's going to happen. Sometimes it's used that way in the Bible. But in this context and often in the Scriptures, the hope referred to a confident certainty of a future event. A confident certainty. And because our hope is tied to Jesus Christ, who is already raised from the dead and is now at the Father's right hand in heaven, we have a confident hope because Jesus Christ is alive and our hope is tied to Him. So our hope is a confident certainty of a future event. Now what is that hope ultimately involving connected with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We'll look at verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So our living hope is that we will one day have an inheritance in heaven that we cannot lose because it's tied with Jesus Christ. Christ is there. Ultimately, we'll be there with Him. He's already become victorious. So our hope is living because He cannot fail. But we have a hope in this incredible inheritance mentioned in verse 4. So we've been born again to a living hope through our living Savior to obtain an inheritance. Now the reason for that is when you're born again, you're born again into the family of God. So now you're a child of God. Well, if you're a child, you're also an heir. Which means you have the right to the inheritance. 
So it only makes sense that if we're born again into the family of God, by God's mercy, that we have the title to His inheritance. Now we're chosen aliens here, Peter has told us. We're just passing through. We're all pilgrims in this life. We're only here for a little while. But we have a treasure waiting for us in heaven. Now in the Old Testament, the inheritance was linked primarily to the land of Canaan. That, I think, became a down payment or a type or a shadow of what Abraham in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is described as actually pointing forward to a better country and a heavenly country. In Hebrews 11 verse 10, it says that Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So that's not an earthly city. It's not the earthly land of Canaan. That was a picture, a type, a shadow, if you will, of the ultimate fulfillment of our inheritance in heaven. And ultimately that will be fulfilled on the new earth, which is infinitely better and more glorious than anything that you can find on this earth. When Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the earth, ultimately I think He's referring to the new earth. That will ultimately be our inheritance. Now look at how it's described here in verse 4. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It's imperishable. That means it's incorruptible. It cannot die. Our inheritance cannot die. It's not subject to decay of any kind. It can't be destroyed. It can't be lost. It can't be squandered. It can't be stolen. It is imperishable. It cannot perish. Which means it's going to be eternal. Now not so with our earthly inheritances. Uh, One of the men I love to read is J.C. Ryle, an old Anglican evangelical with some great sermons but he was uh, born into a very wealthy banking family in England he grew up with the best of everything the best food the best housing the best education he had it all and he was uh, going to school to uh, get prepared to carry on the family business but without warning his very wealthy and powerful father lost it all He lost his business, he lost his mansion, he lost all of his possessions, and all the future security of his son was now lost. And in one day they went from being wealthy to being completely and utterly and entirely ruined. But in God's providence, which brought about this sovereign sabotage, as one author referred to it, a sovereign sabotage of his earthly inheritance, Nevertheless, God used that to transform J.C. Ryle into a choice man of God and used him mightily in the church. But the point is, your earthly inheritances you can lose. They can die. They can be squandered. They can be lost. But this inheritance is imperishable. And that's why Jesus told His disciples Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. 
In other words, focus on your imperishable inheritance. Focus your time, your efforts, your resources on that. Because it's imperishable. Secondly, he says it's undefiled. That means can't be stained or contaminated or defiled in any way. Our inheritance is perfect in purity. No sin can invade it and mar it. No sin or curse can distort it. It can't be devalued by sickness or pain or sorrows or tears or death. Nothing unholy can enter in and distort its pristine purity. It is undefiled. And then he says it will not fade away. And this is in contrast to the flower, which you could put all of our our earthly treasures and they're like a flower that blooms for the day. And then the sun comes out and before too long, the petals wilt, they turn brown, they fall over and they fall to the ground. Our inheritance is not like that. It will not fade away. It has permanent beauty. It can never grow old or lose its glory. It's in eternal, perpetual, full bloom. That's our inheritance. So the sum of this is that our inheritance is damage-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. And notice how Peter described it. He used all negative words and concepts. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. And the reason for this is that a lot lot of times when the Bible tries to describe heaven or the glory of our inheritance, it is so incredibly, infinitely glorious and beautiful that our language really can't even begin to communicate it. And even in the book of Revelation, when it does describe something of the new heavens and the new earth, it describes the streets of the new Jerusalem as being streets of gold made of transparent gold. Well, what is that? We, we don't have transparent gold. We don't even know what that would look like. So even then it's using language because it's like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. When he says that things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard nor has even entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love Him. We can't even express it. It's so glorious, so incredible that all Peter can try to do is say, well, it's not that and it's not that and it's not this. It's not perishable, it's not defilable, and it's not going to fade. And, and by the use of negatives, they're just chipping away all that is finite and inferior and, and it leaves behind what remains is shrouded in the perfections of infinity. So it's just, it's incredible, the inheritance that we have. And then he adds to that, At the end of verse 4, it's reserved in heaven. It's reserved in heaven. Now in the text, in the Greek, this is a passive participle. The passive voice is oftentimes called a theological passive, which means that God is the one that's protecting it. It's protected by God. That's the sense. That's the nuance. So when God reserves our inheritance in heaven, the word reserved here can mean Reserved in the sense of to guard it, to keep watch over it, to protect it, to keep it unharmed. And this is something that God has promised to do. It's also a, in the perfect tense, which indicates it's a completed past event, past time, which continues into the present. 
In other words, God has already reserved it for us. It's already there. It's all, it's all complete. It's just waiting for God to reveal it. And it continues right now. Our inheritance right now is being reserved by God in heaven. Now the fact that it's in heaven is also a blessing because it's far out of reach of any cunning devil or any attempt to steal it away or to corrupt it. No, it's, it's way up in heaven. It's safe. It's far, far away. There's no sleepy-headed night guard pulling a graveyard shift, doing, dozing in a chair that's protecting it. No, it's, it's God Almighty. It's our Heavenly Father who never sleeps, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, who sees all things and knows all things, upholds all things in His hands, who, who's omnipotent. He is guarding it. He is reserving it. He is protecting it for you. So the inheritance is protected by God in heaven for our arrival. And then he adds to that in verse 5, it's reserved in heaven. So God's reserving it for us in heaven. And it's reserved for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. So not only is our inheritance protected, but you are protected to receive your inheritance. The inheritance is protected by God and we're protected by the power of God to receive it. So it's like a double protection to speak of the confidence and the the certainty of receiving it. So we're protected by the power of God through faith. Again, now this word protected in verse 5 again can be used of a military concept of guarding a city with a garrison of troops. But here, of course, again, it's a reference to what God is doing. He is protecting us by His power through faith. Now that through faith is an interesting phrase in there. It certainly reminds us that faith is essential. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to have faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way around it. That's the command of the Gospel to believe in Jesus Christ. Those who endure to the end shall be saved, Jesus says in Matthew 24. Faith is a shield that we use to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And we're told that without faith it's impossible to please God. You've got to have faith. I hope you all have faith in Christ this morning. If you don't, you need to believe upon Him because you're a sinner and you need forgiveness and only Christ can forgive you. So it's through faith that we're protected by the power of God. But now that's an interesting concept because some may say, well, wait a second. If my faith comes from me, then there's a bit of a weak link in this protection. Because if our inheritance is dependent upon my human faith, What would happen if I chose one day to stop believing? If I decided one day that I'm going to just turn around and become a a whatever, follow another religion. Can the power of God protect us if I stop believing? If if, If God's power and protection is dependent upon my faith, which if it comes to us, we can choose to turn away from the Lord, then would we lose our inheritance? Is this even possible? And no, it's not. Because we're protected by the power of God. And yes, it is through faith. But this implies that the power of God protects us by protecting our faith. 
That, I think, is the idea here. It's not that, well, you're protected by the power of God, assuming you can maintain your faith, but if you lose your faith, then God withdraws His power, and suddenly you're not protected, and you lose your salvation. That's not what Peter believes, in my, in my opinion. Otherwise, again, if God's protection depends upon my faith, which can be fickle at times, or even turn away if it's just totally left up to me, then we're really not protected at all. And there is no confidence. If it's dependent upon my faith, then where's the power of God? Well, the power of God is dependent upon you believing. What if I stop believing? Then the power of God is lost. And the inheritance is gone. The faith, you may think, would be the weak link in all of this. Protection. But really, it's not. Because God protects you and me by protecting your faith so that it cannot fail. See, now the Bible teaches that faith is a gift of God. But when God gives you saving faith, He doesn't just stop then and say, well, now you're on your own. He continues to protect that faith. So we are protected by the power of God through faith because God is protecting our faith as well. Now if anybody understood that, it was Peter. Because remember back in Luke chapter 22, Jesus came up to Peter and said, Simon, Simon, and normally when Jesus calls Peter Simon, Simon is in trouble. So he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. Now what's that refer to? Satan is going to come and, and basically sift Peter so that he's going to end up denying the Lord three times. That's what this whole episode refers to. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. And when once again you have turned, strengthen your brothers. You see, Christ was protecting His faith so that it would not fail. That's why you think your faith can fail. It cannot fail. If it was totally up to you, it could fail. If it was of your free will or your doing, it could fail. But our faith will not fail. Peter's faith did not fail because Christ said, I will pray for you so that your faith does not fail. The only way your faith and my faith could fail is if Christ stopped praying. And that's not ever going to happen. Because we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that therefore He, Christ, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is always praying for you. And His prayers sustain your faith, so that our faith will not fail. And that's why we are protected by the power of God through faith. The faith is not the weak link here. Because God protects us 
by protecting our faith. And that's why our inheritance is sure for every one of God's people. This is taught in many other places. Uh, Jesus said in John 6 verse 39 that this is the will of Him who sent me that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing. Christ says, I lose nothing. Why? Because He prays for grace. He prays for God to sustain us. I love that, that picture in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is brought into interpreter's house and interpreter shows him a fire against a wall. You're probably familiar with this story. I've, I think I've told it before, maybe even recently, I can't remember. But the fire is there against the wall burning and a man with a bucket of water is trying to douse out the fire. But when he pours the water on the fire, instead of extinguishing it, the fire grows ever hotter and brighter. And Christian says, this is a mystery. Explain it to me. And he says, well, come here. And he takes him behind the wall. And behind the wall, there's another man who in this story is Jesus Christ who has a bucket of oil and he's pouring it under the wall and invisibly that oil is going under the wall sustaining the fire so that even though the devil, who's a man pouring the water, tries to extinguish the faith, the faith grows ever hotter and brighter because the Son of Man is continually feeding oil to the fire. That's what the Son of God is doing now. He is praying for you and me. He is sending His divine oil to sustain the fire of faith within your soul. Otherwise, if He ever stopped, then our faith would fail. But our faith is sustained by the power of Almighty God. And that's why our inheritance is is such a confident joy for believers. Thus, believers can be encouraged with the truth that God will protect our faith even in times of suffering and it will not fail. So the power of God protects us because the power of God protects our faith. And Peter knew that well. And I think that's what is echoing in the back of his mind when he writes this because of remembering Christ's promise to pray for him to sustain his faith. That's why a true believer can never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. It's not because we're going to maintain our faith. It's because God will maintain our faith. And He will keep it. And He will preserve it. And that's the great confidence that we have. Well, quickly in verse 5, this inheritance has been reserved in heaven who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So now our inheritance is talked about being our salvation. You know, sometimes the Bible talks about we were saved. Sometimes it says we're being saved in sanctification. And sometimes we will be saved. That is our future glorification. So that our inheritance is involved in our ultimate glorification, our future salvation. Look at verse 5 where he says it's ready to be revealed in the last time. So this final phase of our inheritance, when we enter into our inheritance in the glory of heaven, is not yet. It is. It will be revealed in the last time. So it's still future for us. 
But it is a salvation. And the concept of salvation in the Bible is that we will be rescued from God's judgment and God's wrath on the last day. We will be saved. A lot of people come to Christ for a lot of different reasons. Some people come to Christ because they're lonely. Some people come to Christ because they have troubles and sorrows and they need a problem fixer. Now Christ can do all of that. But when it comes to coming to Christ for salvation, the issue is I need a Savior because I am a sinner and I deserve the wrath of God. So that ultimately when I believe in Jesus Christ, He's my Savior and He gives me, He justifies me and gives me the gift of salvation, of of eternal life. Salvation, freedom from His wrath and condemnation. So that those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for them. So all of that will be manifested in, in the glorious final phase when Christ comes back and we enter into the glory of our inheritance on the new earth and the new Jerusalem forever and ever. And until that day, our inheritance is reserved for us and we are reserved for it. So this is our living hope that Peter wants to encourage us all with. Regardless of what trials and struggles you have, he says the key is look beyond them. Look beyond them. And see the inheritance that awaits you in heaven. You don't have it now. You're going through difficult times now. You have problems. You have hardships. You have difficulties. You have things that just don't fit right. You have, you have issues in your life that make it a struggle. But look beyond that. Because all your struggles are only temporary. That we have an eternal inheritance waiting for us. That nothing on this earth can rob from us or steal from us or take it away. And as you focus upon that, it will breathe new life and encouragement into your faith. This is what we see with the Apostle Paul in closing. When he wrote to the church at Corinth. And he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So he's writing to the church at Corinth. And he's saying, you know, our outer man is decaying. And later on in chapter 11, he'll, he'll flesh that out a little bit more. He's decaying in the sense that he's been beaten times without number. Five times he has received the Jewish 39 lashes. So that's about 195 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Can you imagine what his back looked like? Can you imagine the broken bones he experienced? The tissue being torn. The scar tissue that's there all up and down his back. Plus he was stoned. And when they took these heavy rocks and bashed them down on his body and on his head and his neck, he probably had scars all over him. But he says to the Corinthian church, don't lose heart. For our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. 
they can torture and punish my body, but let me tell you, my spirit on the inner man, my faith, it's growing younger every day. And how can that be, Paul? If I was in your circumstance, I'd be, I'd be sobbing left and right. I'd be singing the blues. I mean, what causes the inner man to be renewed when the outer man is being crumbling apart in front of him? Well, he gives the answer. He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And Paul tells us exactly what Peter is telling us. Look, when you're going through struggling and difficult times, get your eyes beyond and look at your inheritance. Look at the glory that's waiting for you. And trust in God. Know that He's sovereign. He has a purpose and a plan. But look forward to the inheritance. And as he says in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. We should greatly rejoice. Well, let me ask you in closing, do you have that hope? The hope of that inheritance? Have you come to Jesus Christ and confessed your sins and acknowledged that you deserve His judgment? But you want forgiveness? And have you come and called upon the name of the Lord to save you and forgive you? If you haven't, do that. And do it right now. His arms are open. He invites you to come. He commands you to come. Come and believe in Him. And He will bless you with eternal life and give you this inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by His power. I hope you have that hope. And if not, may God give it to you. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for the Apostle Peter. We thank You, Lord, that here is a man who knew trials and hardships and difficulties. Here is a man that was attacked by Satan head on. And through that attack, his faith buckled and it stumbled and he denied the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we feel in our own soul sometimes the weakness that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And sometimes we fall into that same type of sin. But Lord, we thank You for Your faithfulness that through Your prayers, through Your power, You have promised to sustain us. And that's why the righteous man can stumble seven times, but will rise again. Not because he has the power, but because of Your promise of Your power to sustain us through faith for that great inheritance. So Lord, help us in the midst of our own struggles to lift our eyes beyond and just to reflect upon that great uh, glory that You have waiting for us. And may that encourage us to persevere in faith and joy and confidence, trusting in You, because we know all that You have waiting for us is so glorious, so beyond our comprehension that we just long to be there in Your good timing. So Lord, may Your Word bear godly fruit in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.